As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. He actually was quite sore after getting off that flight because he had to lean in to talk to Brett, but he was so repulsed by him that his body was sort of trying to make him lean away. So it's like this personal fight against being friendly with this person who's just a real monster. Several weeks ago, we spoke with Caroline Overington about her excellent book, Missing William Tyrrell. And during that conversation, Caroline and I spoke a few times about Daniel Morecambe. It seems inevitable that whenever you talk about the mysterious disappearance of William, Daniel's case comes up. Like William, Daniel seemed to evaporate, impossibly, into thin air. Daniel was 13 years old and he lived with his parents, Bruce and Denise, and his two brothers on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. They didn't live near the beach, though. They lived in a beautiful pocket of tropical farmland called Palmwoods. And Daniel had spent much of his school holidays earning pocket money by fruit picking on a neighbour's farm. On the 7th of December 2003, when he'd finished picking for the day, Daniel showered and changed and made his way to the bus stop near his house. His plan was to take his pocket money to the shopping centre to buy Christmas presents for his family. 
the bus Daniel would have caught that day had broken down before it reached his stop. It was stranded down the road with its impatient passengers inside. So when a replacement bus was delivered to him, the driver was instructed by the company not to stop for any more passengers, but to try to make up as much time as possible and get those already on board to the shopping centre. The people still waiting at bus stops would just have to wait a little longer for the next scheduled bus. Daniel Morecambe was one of those people. He stood at his stop and watched his bus, already late, drive right past him. The driver motioned to Daniel that there was another bus right behind him and he radioed that other driver to make sure he didn't miss the boy. But when that second bus arrived at the stop less than two minutes later, Daniel was gone. For eight long years, we struggled to understand how it was possible that he was gone, without a trace, from that bus stop in broad daylight in less than two minutes. And we followed his distraught parents, Bruce and Denise, in their mournful search for their son. Daniel's turned out to be one of those cases that gives us hope for resolution in cases like William's. Because although Queensland Police visited Brett Peter Cowan just days after Daniel first disappeared, It took seven years, an inquest and an incredibly intricate covert operation for them to find a way to convict him of Daniel's abduction and murder. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Kate Kiriakou is the crime and courts editor of Brisbane's Courier-Mail newspaper. And she's the author of the definitive book on the subject of that operation. It's called The Sting. She joined Emily to talk about it. He was such a reliable kid. It, It really wasn't like him. It was really one of those cases, and this does happen often, and I think cases like this have taught police a lot over the years. Bruce and Denise have made contact with the police and said, our son hasn't come home, he was supposed to come home on the bus and he hasn't. And at that point, he'd barely been missing at all. And, you know, obviously police get so many reports of missing kids all the time. And um, at that point, they just kind of thought he would might be with a mate or got held up somewhere or something like that, but Bruce and Denise just knew that that wasn't Daniel. And so they drove around all night looking for him and were obviously beside themselves. And very sadly, years later, you know, they discover that by the time they knew he was missing, he was already dead. So effectively what's happened is they determined that Daniel had tried to get a bus to the plaza, Uh, an earlier bus had broken down and then the replacement bus had been told to just pick up those passengers on that bus and just go straight to the shopping centre. That driver saw Daniel at the bus stop and Daniel tried to wave him down but because he'd been told to go direct to the shops, he didn't stop but he saw a man there with him as well and he radioed to a bus behind that was supposed to be picking up those passengers and said, you know, there's a couple of people at that bus stop. They just waved at me. I had to keep going, but can you pick them up? Incredibly, there was 90 seconds between that bus and the bus behind. And when the bus behind pulled over or, or at least drove up to that stop, there was nobody there. So in that 90 seconds, Daniel has been lured away from that bus stop. I find that extraordinary, that that detail. What time frame was this in the afternoon again? When the bus was late and he was worried that he wasn't going to have very much time before the plaza closed. So it was about three-ish. It was that kind of period of the afternoon. And then really what we find out much later, he was lured into the car of Brett Peter Cowan, who was at that point a repeat child sex offender. Brett had basically said to him, oh, I was waiting for someone to get off that bus, but they weren't on it. They must be at the plaza. Do you want me to give you a lift there? Is that where you're going? And Daniel said yes. I mean, the sad thing is here is that you've got to wonder, he knew about stranger danger. He knew not to get into a stranger's car, but he was also a really polite kid. So you have to worry that the polite kids are the ones that are in danger because they don't like to say no to an adult. But for whatever reason, he's got into the car of a stranger. I think of the bus driver. I think of that inches and seconds moment where he 
is obviously doing what he's been asked to do, but it's also a child waiting at a bus stop. And I just wonder about what that bus driver's felt all those years later. Did you ever find out much about the bus driver and subsequently how this impacted him as well? Yeah, I I know he gave evidence at the commuter and at the trial from memory. It's been a while now. I, I know it affected every, anyone involved and that includes that bus driver. And in the end, you're right, he was just doing what he was told to do and I, I know people on the bus actually yelled out and said, hey, there's a kid there and, and they were sort of worried for the kid as well, you know, like why didn't why didn't you stop for that boy who was waving at the bus? Because the passengers on that bus obviously didn't know that he was under instruction to keep going. But at the same time, he knew that there was another bus just behind him. And and he he cared enough to radio back to that bus driver and say that there was a boy and, and a and a man there. I mean that's a split second where he's seen people wave at him and he still made sure that they were going to be okay by this bus that was you know, less than two minutes behind him. So I guess nobody could have imagined that in that time a a pedophile could lure a child away from a bus stop in that time, in that window. It's terrifying, actually. So Daniel hasn't come home there. They really know something's wrong. They're calling the police. At what point do the police start to really fear that something has happened to Daniel, that he hasn't just kind of taken his time at the shops or done a diversion somewhere? I think it was the next day that they really started to pay attention. I know there was an officer the next day who was the one who worked out that Daniel had been seen at the bus stop and then by the time the next bus arrived, he was gone. It was a police sergeant who called the bus company and got that information. So that gave them a starting point to begin the search. And that search was enormous and it went on for a very long time. One of the first things they did was they got a list of child sex offenders who are known to either live or frequent Sunshine Coast. Huge amounts of police resources were put into knocking on every one of their doors and basically saying, where were you at this time on this date and, you know, basically prove it. That's why very amazingly only two weeks into the investigation they knocked on Brett Cowan's door. I don't think they put it together right then but it wouldn't have taken them long. The church that Brett used to go to and, in fact, his auntie and uncle were pastors there was right behind the bus stop there. So if you were going to, for example, park your car because you wanted to lure a child into your vehicle, you'd probably park it in the church car park, which is what happened. They asked Brett where he was and he said he'd gone to pick up a mulcher from his boss's house and then drove it home, did some gardening and mulch, some branches and stuff. And they went and visited the boss and he said, yeah, that's right. Brett picked it up at about this time. And they said to him, well, obviously the, the route you just described takes you right past that bus stop at, at the exact time. He said, yep, yep, that's exactly where I drove. And the reason why he admitted to that, and, and Brett Cowan has a real habit of, of doing this where he's backed into a corner and he knows he has to admit to something. He admits to maybe like 10%. He's always done that. So he said, yep, I drove past the exact place where Daniel was at basically the exact right time, but I, I didn't see him there admitted to it because all the traffic cameras along the highway there he thought were recording so he actually thought that the the cops knew that he'd driven that way he thought that they had his rego and pinged him but those cameras at that point didn't record they were just sort of monitoring the traffic so he admitted to that but while those police really believed that he was the one other investigators thought that the time it would have taken him to go pick up the mulcher and then the time he arrived home it just wasn't enough time So that's how the investigation sort of started off, just by visiting all these, they called them persons of interest, one after the other. And the sad thing about it is that they ended up with, you know, more than 30, you know, decent suspects just from this really lovely coastal holiday location, which which just seemed at the time to just be filled with child sex offenders. At what point, Kate, did you start reporting on Daniel's case. I actually only started reporting on it in 2012 when I moved to Queensland. So before that, I was working interstate and had obviously read about it, but I only started reporting in 2012 when it was in court. Yeah, I came into it 
after he'd been arrested. It was the most fascinating and tragic court case I've ever covered because there was a legal argument at the beginning about whether the the contents of the covert operation would be able to be reported on publicly or made public or heard in open court. And in the end, a, a judge decided that they could be heard in open court. And that was because there's actually in other jurisdictions and overseas, there's a lot of material out there about this particular covert operation. So it wasn't really a secret. And then obviously in Australia, it was much less of a secret after this case. As I'll explain, the interesting thing about this covert operation is it only works on a certain personality type anyway. So, you know, I think in other areas where it's been widely reported on, it still works because the people who are going to fall for it will kind of fall for it regardless. The publicity obviously makes life a little more difficult, but some people are just gullible and Brett Cowan was one of them. You said that the kind of operation the police did to catch Daniel Morecambe's killer only works on certain types of personalities. So tell us a bit about Brett Cowan's personality. He also had an unusual alias, didn't he, as well? He was also known by another name. Yeah, he changed his name after the heat sort of was on him regarding Daniel's disappearance. He idiotically thought that police wouldn't be able to serve him with a summons or a subpoena or anything like that if his name was different. So he changed it to Shadow Nanya Hunter. I'm told Shadow was the name of his dog at some point. And Nanya, short for Nanya fucking business. And then Hunter, I can't remember, but it was just the dumbest name, like many things that he does. So I guess to describe Brett, and obviously I've seen him you know, a lot in court, but I've never spoken to him and I've never met him. So I'm just relying on, I guess, people who have dealt with him and then a lot of the court material. But he's very, very self-centred. He loves to talk about himself. In fact, part of the, the court material was indirect personality assessment, assessments that were carried out where police just ask people who know him a lot of questions to try and build a psychological profile when they can't actually, you know, ask him himself. Someone who knew him very well basically was asked what kind of reading material he likes and and they said pornography. You know, what kind of movies does he watch, uh, action and violence, plays computer games. He was good with his hands. He, He went from job to job just reading the covert material and a lot of the covert transcripts from this operation which went for, you know, a few months you just get this real sense of this complete idiot who just rambles incessantly about themselves and big notes themselves and and often would try and make himself sound really intelligent and would just get things completely wrong or just say completely stupid things. And you can only just imagine being a covert officer having to sort of play along with that and and pretend to be mates with this person who's just, I mean, it sounds trivial to say it because in the end he's a very, very evil man. But he's also just so annoying. He's just, just to listen to him talk when you're reading through the material, he's just so incredibly annoying. I just don't know how anyone ever spent more than five minutes with him. I saw in one of your articles you'd mentioned that a usual murder investigation might create 500 jobs, and I know jobs are like leads of information, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like a job log, yeah. Yeah. So someone calling up Crime Stoppers, for example. But with the investigation into Daniel's disappearance, there was more than 18,000 jobs logged. That's a lot of information. Was that gathered over the whole time of the investigation or was there particular hot kind of times for when people were ringing in with info? Yeah, so certainly the first few months, the majority of those job logs were sort of run out because you can imagine the people who wanted to help and and the sheer volume of, of people wanting to help when a young boy goes missing from the side of the road. I know that people were nominating people. There were false confessions. You know, in fact, people rang up and said, I know Brett Cowan lives on the Sunshine Coast and if a kid goes missing, it was him. You know, people were ringing up and saying it was Brett Cowan, but people were ringing up and saying it was hundreds of other people too. You know, people were ringing up to dob in their ex-partner or whatever out of revenge. So there are a lot of, you know, that huge numbers of very well-meaning people and people who saw things that were extremely relevant too. And then there was also quite a big red herring with this case in that a lot of people saw a blue car parked 
near the bus stop and there were various versions of events with that you know there was two people there or three people there and they were wrestling a kid in the back or they were, you know all sorts of different things and so for police police for much of the investigation were looking for a blue car and in the end it turned out that Whatever that blue car was about, because they still don't know, it, it actually had nothing to do with Daniel's disappearance at all. And there's often red herrings in big murder investigations like that. It was an enormous investigation. And I know 12 months after they released computer-generated images or, or sketch artist images of the man who was seen standing at the bus stop with Daniel, and that resulted in a lot more phone calls too of people thinking that they knew the person depicted in the sketch. And in fact, people rang up at that time and said, you know, that's Brett Cowan in that image that you've released. But again, those police who knocked on his door were 100% convinced that had the right person. And they did. But that doesn't mean you could prove it in a court of law. And that's what they needed. And that's what took a very long time. So let's talk about this sting operation to catch Daniel Morecambe's killer, Brett Cowan. Yeah, so it basically started um, at about the time of the inquest. So Daniel had been missing for years, I think at this point about seven years. An inquest was being held and because the inquest was coming up, police went back and reviewed a lot of the evidence and they called all of these persons of interest to the stand and questioned them on the stand about where they'd been and what they'd been doing and their background. And one of those people was Brett Cowan, obviously, and he had such a horrific history of child sex offending. He got hammered on the stand by a couple of different lawyers about his attacks on children in the past. One of those young boys ended up with horrific injuries. So he was really hammered on the stand and he sort of spoke about it much later about how uncomfortable that was for him, how difficult he found it. I'm sure everyone feels really terrible for him. What had also been happening in the background was a couple of detectives had been working really hard to break his alibi and the reason why they'd been looking at that is because in a different sort of court hearing, and legally it's difficult to talk about that too much, but basically Brett had told someone that he dropped in on his drug dealer on the way back from picking up the mulcher from his boss. And that's not a detail he'd told police before and he said that because there was a missing sort of 30 to 45 minutes in his time frame of when he picked up the mulcher and when he'd arrived home and I think he was trying to explain that away. Police then took a fresh look into exactly what his movements were and they went to visit that drug dealer who was a woman and said do you remember him dropping in? She didn't really remember it so she seemed to think that she probably would have been down at the local club playing the pokies. So these very resourceful detectives went and tried to prove that she was there playing the pokies on that day. And what they were able to find was that they did used to have like a card swipe in out situation there where if you were playing the pokies, you could swipe your card in. They dug out the actual card reading machine from some dusty room, plugged it in, and then they actually were able to prove that she wasn't home at that time. And so they proved that he lied about that. And it just, I guess, made them really zone in on him as a suspect. And really, he was the only person that they could put at the scene at the time. That's when they decided they were going to just sort of one last roll of the dice on him and start this covert operation. And I think it sort of morphed into a Mr. Big Sting as it went. After the break, we'll hear the fascinating details of how that sting went down from the woman who wrote the book, Kate Kiriakou, who is the crime and courts editor for The Courier Mail. She's also a true crime podcaster. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear her talk about the two cases she's covered in depth in her podcasts. Thank you to our patrons, Andrea Hrubos, Lee Vasilou, Beck Bennett, Peter Doyle, Sarah Harding and Phil Holbird. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Coming up on Australian True Crime, some terrible questions are finally answered. But first, how do police begin a sting operation? How does an undercover policeman gain the trust of someone who knows they're in the frame? Brett Cowan was asked about Daniel Morecambe's disappearance just days after it happened, and he was questioned at the inquest. He was living in Perth at the time, and they had to fly him to Brisbane to appear at this inquest. And so what they decided to do is put a covert officer in the seat next to him for the flight home. And so the flight from Brisbane to Perth, I think, is about five hours. And that covert operative had five hours, I guess, uh, make a date to hang out with him again. And initially they sort of, so this covert officer, his, his name was, his covert name was Joe. And Joe was basically going to pretend that he needed, he's moving to Perth, he needs to get himself sorted. He wants to buy a cheap secondhand car, but he doesn't know much about cars. And of course they knew that Brett loved tinkering with cars and that's why they mentioned cars. So they're hoping that he would offer to help go car shopping with him. And that's exactly what happened. So um, Joe, I understand, has a lot of skill as randomly meeting someone and, and being able to charm them. So he he did such an amazing job on that plane. And I was very lucky to be able to interview him for an article, as long as we took great lengths to basically not give away any parts of his identity. He told me that he actually was quite sore after getting off that flight because he had to lean in to talk to Brett, but he was so repulsed by him that his body was sort of trying to make him lean away. So it's like this personal fight against being friendly with this person who's just a real monster. You described Joe as being a really expert, was it approach? Like a cold, yeah, cold approach, covert. He's just such a... A non-threatening presence. You know, he's quiet and he's friendly and you would never, ever, ever pick him as a cop. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. Um, he, he has been described to me as one of their best cold approach operatives. And, and that's just because he's unassuming, he's friendly, he's quiet. He, so, so what I mean by a cold approach is that, you know, uh, just meeting someone at random. I know initially Brett thought that Joe might have been a journalist, but then after a few minutes of talking to him, he decided he wasn't. So, I, I mean, really in that five hours, Joe just had to do his very best to kind of make Brett feel comfortable and I guess pique his interest, you know. So talking about uh, I'm moving to Perth, I need to buy a cheap car, I'm a bit down on my luck at the moment kind of thing. And Brett obviously was a you know, he could identify with that. And I think he said something to him like, you know, I know what it's like to have to start again. By the end of that flight, 
Brett had handed over his phone number to Joe and then they made contact and they went car shopping together. And the plan was initially to sort of wire that car up and put a bunch of listening devices in it and see if I could get Brett talking and, and you never know what he might say. But obviously things developed hugely after that into this really, really complex COVID operation. The WA police had just done a Mr Big Sting and after hearing about that, Queensland police decided to look into whether Brett would be a good target. So to summarise the Mr Big Sting, police basically pretend to be a criminal organisation, like an organised crime gang with a very specific hierarchy. So you've got your Mr Big up the top and in this case their Mr Big's name was Arnold and he must be respected and, and the guys down the bottom maybe don't even get to meet him because he's the big, big boss. And so they do all sorts of jobs. They might do drug running or gun running or smuggling diamonds or running brothels, all sorts of things. It was very varied, all of the stuff that they had him doing. They take this suspect, this target, and they work him in from the bottom rung. So they basically say, hey, do you need some work? You look a bit down on your luck. When Brett went back from the inquest, to Perth. He was living in a caravan park. He had no money. He lost his job soon after he got back. Couldn't even afford to pay his phone bill. And that's when Joe was sort of becoming friends with him. And Brett was really down on his luck. He was really isolated. He had no friends. He's really the perfect target because what they did is they slowly recruited him into this group where they were making really good money. And it was kind of like a brotherhood where they kept going on and on about these mottos of trust and honesty and loyalty. They're all loyal to each other. They all trust each other. They're all honest with each other. They all look after each other. So the more he got to know these guys, the more they brought him into sort of bigger jobs. He was meeting all of these different people, different characters. You know, at one point they did a handover of firearms to an organised motorcycle gang member. They introduced him to police officers who were sort of on the take, you know, who were weirdly undercover cops playing cops. <laughs> he over several months just got really, really lured into this brotherhood. And one thing about Brett Cowan is that he'd done some sort of sex offenders course back in the early days in jail where they said to him, you should be honest with people about your past. And he seems to have taken that really seriously because there are a lot of people in his life who would just tell that he was a child sex offender. And I imagine for a lot of people, they're not really too keen to stay in contact. So he was really isolated. His brothers hated him. He was a real loner, he had no money. And all of a sudden he was running around with these guys who were having these champagne and lobster lunches and driving flash cars and making really big money. And they really liked him. It must've been really, really hard for them to do that. At what point do police make their move and actually arrest Brett and charge him with the murder of Daniel. After spending months convincing him that he was part of this criminal organisation, they sort of lure him with this promise of a big job. So they, were, they had him out at this little airstrip, this sort of, I think, a, a very small airstrip. And they said, we're going to fly in like a shipment of drugs. Uh, I think it was ecstasy. And everyone's going to get a big cut. And your cut is going to be $100,000. Brett had never seen that much money in his whole life. He just couldn't believe it. He became really obsessed with this new life. And, and when he heard about this hundred grand, like he'd almost spent it. He was that convinced. So they get him to that point where he's just, you know, loving this, this new life. He actually said to one of the covert guys at one point, this is the stuff dreams are made of. He was just gushing over his new mates and his new life. And so then what they did is they said, okay, we're going to bring you into this big job, but like everyone who we bring into a big job, we need to background check you properly because if there's any sort of skeletons in your closet that might bring any sort of unwanted police attention to our group, we can't have you in the group, basically. I mean, we are a pretty powerful organisation. We can make problems go away. We can give people new identities. We've got a, a dirty cop who's going to do a background check on you. We're going to make sure everything's good with you. And if it's all good, you can come in on this $100,000 job. Brett was hanging out with this COVID officer who was a WA police officer whose name was Fitzy. And he just loved Fitzy and, and they do all their jobs together and go on all sorts of adventures together. I think they're driving to Kalgoorlie to do something. And so Fitzy gets a phone call and basically says, they say, turn around, head back into town. Arnold's in town. He wants to meet with Brett. And so Arnold is someone that 
Brett had been hearing about the whole time. Arnold was the big boss. He was in charge with everything. If you talk to Arnold, you, you talk to him with respect, you know, that sort of thing. And so Brett sort of couldn't believe that Arnold wanted to speak to him. So they go to this posh hotel where Arnold has like a, I guess, a conference room booked or a room booked. They take him in there and there's Arnold in a suit and he sits Brett down and he basically says, there's, there's a problem with your background check. You know, I pay a lot of people to make sure that my operation runs smoothly and there's a bit too much heat on you. And then he says, I, I hear that you're in the frame for the murder of Daniel Morecambe. And Brett says, oh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't me kind of thing. And basically the way they got him is they said to him, you need to tell us what you've done so that we can make sure there's no evidence out there that's going to bring the police knocking on our door. And if you're not honest with us, then we can't have you on board. So this whole new life that he was so obsessed with and the first time in his life he'd been accepted by anybody was basically about to be taken away from him unless he told them, what he'd done. And he said, no, I didn't, I didn't do it. You know, I was just in the area at the time and I've got a bit of stuff in my background that I'm not proud of. And Arnold said to him, I don't care what's in your background. I don't care what you've done. That's immaterial to me. You know, we've all got a past here, but you can't lie to me. You need to tell me or you're out. And he tries to deny it again. And Arnold basically says, you know, if you're not going to tell me what you've done, you can't continue with us. And so he says, yeah, okay, I did it. And from there, it was like a, a floodgate opened because Brett had been keeping this secret. So he got Brett to confess in detail, draw them a map, tell them exactly what had happened to, to Daniel, where he'd left him, what he'd done. And I'm just going to bring you back to what I said earlier too, where, where Brett only ever confesses to a fraction of what he's done. And his confession here while they were able to prove the the main point, the important parts of it, which were he did murder Daniel and this is where he left Daniel's body. I think his version of events, I don't think many people believe it. I think he'd lessened what he'd done and I think Bruce and Denise certainly believe that he he lessened what he'd done and he didn't tell the full story here. But he ended up taking them. So they all flew to Queensland together and he took them to the place where he said, he'd left Daniel. What started there was this enormous police effort to uncover his remains. And of course, eight years had passed. And even worse was the Queensland floods had happened in that time. So they had to go and speak to hydrologists and all sorts of scientific experts to get advice on if Daniel had been left there, what would have happened to him when the, when the floodwaters came through. And the scientists were able to tell them that the water would have risen and then lowered without flowing. So they were confident that if he had been left there, you know, the, he, ha, he wouldn't have washed away in the floodwaters. And so they started digging and digging and digging and they had to go down to the soil. They had to get advice on what the soil level would have been in 2003 compared to 2011. And so they got machinery in there. They got the SES in there and they just went through inch by inch of soil over this enormous area until they found his sneaker and then they found some bones. And in that time, some police didn't want to charge Brett at that point. They didn't want to charge him without a body. But other police basically said, if we never find him, this is the best we're going to get. And so he was charged. And then it was a few days between his arrest and finding that first shoe. And once they found his remains, then they had a very, very, very strong case against him. You know, in the background of all of this, Bruce and Denise have been working tirelessly. They've started a foundation which is very successful to this day. There's not a single police officer who worked on that case who wouldn't agree that had Bruce and Denise not fought so hard to keep their son in the public eye, that case would not have been solved. It's only because they kept fighting for him over and over that the police never gave up. And I'm not saying they would have just forgotten about him, but they they went to such extreme lengths because Bruce and Denise pushed for it. 
And I think they'd all agree to that. And sometimes it's sad when I speak to families, which I do all the time for work, and not all of them have the capacity or the fight in them that Bruce and Denise do. And and you sort of think it's, I guess it's, yeah, it's complicated, but I find that sad sometimes because not everyone has that fight in them. Tell us a little bit about some of the podcasts you've done. Podcasting, as you would know, is a huge amount of work. And depending on the format you do it in too, when you're splicing a lot of interviews together and that sort of stuff, it can take you so long to write the scripts. And also the journalism side of things involves investigating, tracking people down. But the first one I did was about a young scientist named Jeffrey Brooks who died from a gunshot wound back in the 90s when he was working on a crayfish farm. His parents came to us at the paper and basically asked for help. And they didn't believe, well, basically the police found rather quickly that he died accidentally. He, part of his job was to scare away the birds that would eat the crayfish. He would do that by firing a shotgun into the air. There was a shotgun at the farm that he refused to use. It was really old, manufactured in 1901 or something. It was like really old. It was falling apart. He wouldn't use it. He said it was dangerous. He was extremely safe with guns. And to the point where he'd said to the owners of the farm, I'm not using that gun. You need to buy me a good gun if you want me to use it for scaring birds. And they had. So basically what happened was he was found in one of the farm vehicles down by a pond and he had a gunshot wound to his upper chest he was slumped in the car over the gun that he'd always refused to use. So Jeffrey's parents really just couldn't accept that the police were right about his death being accidental. So a colleague and I looked into that really closely and, and we got international experts and we got you know scientists and we got pathologists and we got ballistics experts and basically concluded that the trajectory of the gunshot wound in his chest, which went from up to down through his chest wall. He just couldn't have shot himself on that angle. And then the other thing about gunshot wounds, which is really, really interesting, is that the closer you are to a shotgun specifically, the smaller the wound is and the and the further away, the larger the wound is. And that's because shotguns have pellets and the pellets spread the further they travel. So police can actually measure the size of the wound and then look at the type of gun that's used and, and the type of cartridge that's used and, and really get a very accurate determination of how far the gun was from the wound. What we were able to do is source the same gun and the same ammunition. And we went to a really high level laboratory in, in Victoria and we did some gunshot tests on ballistic gel. And basically those tests showed that to get a wound of the size that Jeffrey had on his chest, the, the gun would have had to have been too far for him. His arms just weren't that long. So we presented all of our evidence in writing to the Attorney General with the help of actually a lawyer who, the same lawyer who helped Daniel Morecambe's parents. That resulted in the Attorney General calling for a new inquest into Jeffrey's death. It has been an amazing relief for his family. That's yet to happen. And of course, in this current environment, I think all the inquests are on hold for, for some time. But I think what I wanted was to see that his death was very closely examined and that will happen now. That's a fantastic result. What was that podcast called, Kate? It's called Dead Wrong. Excellent. And the next one you did resulted in an equally successful outcome. Tell us about Spear Creek. This one was a really fascinating and very sad murder from the 70s. And it was basically three friends, a man named Tim, his, his girlfriend Karen, and their friend Gordon, who was a New Zealander. And they travelled on two motorbikes. Karen and Tim were on the same bike, but their bike had a, a really distinctive homemade sidecar. And on top of the sidecar was Tim's Doberman pup called Trixie. And that is kind of important that detail because people remembered. They remembered the sidecar and the puppy and, and the three friends travelling. 
Uh, they started off in Alice Springs. The plan was to go across the Cairns and then down the coast, and they just disappeared. They'd been staying at a caravan park. Witnesses said they were they were joined on on the road by another man in a, on a motorbike, and then they arrived in Mount Isa. They booked the room at the caravan park, a site at the caravan park, and they were joined that night by a man in a four wheel drive a white four-wheel drive, and then he came back to visit them again the next morning. I mean, this was a town where they were just passing through. They they didn't know anybody. They were basically collected the next morning by a man in a four-wheel drive again. Uh, people who were at the caravan park assumed it was the same man, and they left for the day, and anyway, they never returned. That night, man in a four-wheel drive turned up, dismantled their campsite, took all their stuff away, even, even took the dog. And nobody knew they were missing. And it was a couple of weeks later that a couple walking came across the body of a man. Police were called in. They found two more bodies and, and it was the three of them. They'd been, I guess, lured out into the bush and, and gunned down. That remained unsolved for many, many years. The cold case unit looked at it again recently and basically an important part of that story is they actually found Tim's motorbike, which is a very distinctive, expensive motorbike. And they found it in the possession of a, a local, uh, a young man who lived locally. And when they went and, and seized that motorbike, a neighbour had spotted it, the police put photos of it out there. When they went and seized that motorbike, he said he'd found it on the side of the road. It was abandoned. And so they charged him with theft and he, he pleaded guilty and he was fined. Police have looked at that man again. He, his father had a, a white four-wheel drive that matched the description of the one seen at the caravan park. He owned a motorbike that matched the description of the one that joined the, the friends on the road. And in fact, he'd been on his own road trip traveling the same route. He, he admitted to that, but he said he was a couple of days behind them and, and basically said he'd, he'd never seen them. He didn't know anything about them. Um, he'd never met them. Um, but police have alleged that he is responsible for all three murders. And um, yeah, I went to see him to ask him about it and um, he didn't want to talk to me, which is his right, um, obviously. And then not long after that, he was charged with three counts of murder. So um, he, through his lawyer, has very much denied he had anything to do with their deaths, but that that's going to go to court in the next year or two. Wow, that it was an incredible result listening to it. Um, just If you could just go through again for me, um, because I think there was a bit that broke up when you described. Um, so who were the, the victims of the Spear Creek murders as they're known? There were three friends, a woman named Karen, her boyfriend Tim, and their friend Gordon, who was from New Zealand. And they were all fairly young, aged between, I think, 23 and 31. And they had met in Alice Springs to sort of go on this epic road trip around Australia. So they were Travelling from Alice Springs on two motorbikes, so Karen and Tim on the one bike with the with a homemade sidecar that had Tim's pup uh, Trixie on it, and they were travelling from Alice Springs across to Cairns and then all the way down the coast and around to Melbourne, which is where Karen's family were from. So they're going to spend Christmas with Karen's family. So it was this really amazing trip that they'd planned on the open road through the outback, and really they only made it maybe two or three days into that trip. Yeah, it's, it was such a mystery for so long and, and that podcast was really uh, incredible listening. Now that podcast is no longer available, is it? Because there's been um, an, uh, uh, someone charged or is it still available to listen to? I believe it's still available to listen to, yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. We haven't taken it down. Thank you to patrons Letitia Bloomfield, Nicole Thompson, Mel Stewart, Fiona Leonard, Ebony Herford and Emma Luffhead will be back next week. Take care.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.